0: Hello and welcome to the Patreon bonus podcast, Um, which really genuinely needs a better name. Um, Patreon bonus podcast is just not that fun to say. Um, And now that the membership program, the Time Travelers Club, has its own podcast that is sort of similar to this one, but a little bit more in depth, that one has a name. It's called the Time Traveler Dispatch. So I thought that we should give this podcast a name that is more fun and interesting than the Patreon bonus podcast. So in the newsletter this week, I proposed a couple of options, Um, but I am genuinely curious what you all think. Um, Here's a couple that I came up with. The Parallel World, The Alternate Timeline, wharfs of Lard, which is the letters of flash forward scrambled into a new set of words, Uh, Octopus Bands, which is bonus podcast scrambled, The Protean, which is Patreon scrambled up into new words, or combining, you know, since I usually call this the Patreon bonus podcast, this could be The Protean Octopus Bands which is Patreon bonus podcast lettering all scrambled up. So let me know what you think. Uh, For now, I'm calling it the bonus podcast, but I'm genuinely curious what you think. By by next one of these, I will have picked a new name. So hit me with your ideas or your thoughts. Anyway, uh, today we are talking about the flash forward episode, Should We Put Polar Bears in Antarctica? Like I said on the episode, there were so many things that didn't make the final cut. Um, The first cut of this episode was like, verging on two hours long, which is way too long. Uh, And so we're going to get to those bits in one second. But before we get into that, I just want to tell you that I am conducting a little experiment on you right now that you didn't even know about until now, because I'm telling you about it now. Um, So I'm testing something out for an upcoming episode of the advice show, advice for and from the future. Um, On an upcoming episode of that show, I'm going to be talking about a couple of images And obviously talking about pictures on a podcast is a challenge, uh, since it's a podcast and it's just audio. Um, but there are a couple of different ways to do it and I'm testing out a couple of them. And one of them I am testing on you right now. So this is a method that I heard about from my friend Ponders who runs a really cool podcast called Accession. That's all about art and art history. So you should go check out their podcast. It's really cool. And they told me about this sort of way of embedding images into the file for an RSS feed. And so in theory, if you pull up your podcasting app right now, you should be able to see a picture. There should be a picture accessible to you. So you might have to swipe to see it depending on what podcasting app you're looking at and then that you use. But there should at some point now in your podcasting app be a picture of my dog. Her name is Moro. She's a black and white dog, so hopefully you can see that. Um, and if you know, I know that this doesn't work on all podcast listening apps, so you might not be able to. But if you do, just let me know if you can see it. Either way, um, and what app you're using. I'm just trying to kind of gather information about who can see it and who can't. Um, so if you have a second to email me and tell me if you can see these images throughout the episode, I will note when the image should change. So sort of keep an ear open for that. And if you can, and if you have your podcast app handy, if you're not, you know, driving or doing something with your hands right now, um, and you can check and see, let me know, because I want to make sure that it's working sort of the way I think it's going to work. Okay, now on the stuff that I cut. So the first big thing that I cut from the episode was this conversation that I had with Jason McLaughlin about what sort of makes an ecosystem, like why is there a forest here and a prairie over there, um, like what are the things that actually make that happen, and it's a simple question, but the answer is actually really complicated and has sort of changed recently.
1: And and, and this is actually a really pretty fundamental question that has people on on uh, str- feel strongly on both sides of it. There, and I've switched from one side to the other over my career. I used to be a person who believed that, that you could say a lot about... The climate by understanding where a species lives, and now I think you can't. I think those other factors um, influence a lot, and I think that communities create their own stability. So if we have a small ecosystem with woolly stars and some little, you know, um, uh, desert rabbit that eats that, and some desert fox that eats the rabbit, you know, that that they sort of they promote stability in their own system um, and so and so if you look at all three of them they're going to have a distribution that might be constrained by climate but it's not climate that's determining that um, so it's a if you talk to ten ecologists you'll get you know 12 opinions on this
0: was there something in particular that changed your mind in regards to like climate and the so groups of species and sort of like the You said you mentioned you went from one side to the other. Was
1: there, like, something particular that changed your mind about that? Yeah, a graduate student. Um, Kelly Heilman, who's now a postdoc at uh, University of Arizona, uh, did a dissertation in my lab, and we were looking at the distribution of species in the Midwest, of tree species in the Midwest, not, not... in the last ice age only 200 years ago so we have very good information about the distribution of species just before land clearance and agriculture started um, and we were testing an idea that our friend Carlos Staver put out in in the tropics especially in well in in Africa and and uh, South America especially that there is um, that that Big communities of organisms have these self reinforcing tendencies to that stabilize themselves and that those are fragile and can collapse so everybody might have uh, many of your listeners might have heard this in uh, last summer when the amazon fires were very were raging, and people were worried that the Amazon might actually collapse that it was near a tipping point and could turn over into something like a savannah that would never come back into um into rainforest. And, and so we were testing this idea in the Midwest because the Midwest back in 1820, there were closed old growth forests like rainforests and there were open savannas. And, there, and, and we were saying, well, what was the climate that determined that boundary? And Kelly discovered that there was no climate that determined that boundary, that that boundary was determined by the species themselves. The forests reinforce themselves. The prairies reinforce themselves. And in the very same climate, you can either have forests or prairies, but not in between. They have to be one or the other, very different systems. And when she, um, when Kelly w- was analyzing these data, I was convinced that she had made a mistake. And, you know, so we kept going back to it and saying, well, what about this? What about this? We came up with all sorts of very, like, imaginative ways that climate could determine vegetation and it's just not there. So, and I was really like my training you know, for 30 years was, climate, there might be a noisy relationship between climate and vegetation, but vegetation predicted by climate. It goes back to like Alexander Von Humboldt. Like why, if you look in your, in your biology book, there's a picture of the biomes of the world and where they occur in climate space. Turns out that for a lot of those biomes, I mean, we're not the only ones who are finding this. So on the modern landscape, all over, people are finding that there can be alternative vet assemblies of species in the same climate. And it does make you worry about human impacts because when that's the case, you can switch from one community to another and it's very hard to go back. You can't just say, oops, we should go back. It, once, once you switch over that that tipping point, you can't get back, um, and so it does raise the idea that um, that that communities reinforce themselves, and that you can break that relationship, and you can't put the pieces back together. So that, yeah, that, I learned that from Kelly. That's
0: so interesting. It's funny. We have a there's a flash forward book club for listeners who want to read books together. And last a couple of months ago now we read a biography of alexander von Kvold, wow. um, which is very interesting and i had memorized the biomes of the world map, you know in high school biology so yeah. i know like you know I, I did well on that quiz and reading about him and his like travels and i actually didn't know very much about him and he's like obviously a very fascinating weird person Super. um but um, reading about him was really interesting but yeah like this that's why I was like, I need to know more about that because I had always learned that if you have this climate, you
1: get this, and if you have that climate, you get that. It's. I mean, it's certainly true to a certain extent. Like the Sahara Desert, why is that? Why does that have the? You know, it, it's it's because it's too hot and dry, right? <laughs> and that's true. I could predict that. I could make a model. I could make a computer model that predicts the Sahara Desert and predicts the vegetation of the Sahara Desert exactly right. But I cannot do that for the Midwest of the U.S. So, yeah. so, and that's a big question. Which, which biomes are stable and which aren't? There's quite a few all over the world. You know, the boreal forest, um, the tropical rainforest, tropical savannas. Uh, uh, people argue about um, temperate forests. Um, and you, by now you're talking about, you know, most of the world's... Um, Uh, land surface. (laughs) Not to mention uh, aquatic marine systems as well, you know. Um, So I think that that there's a trend in this direction in the literature and my thinking has switched. I think a bunch of us are starting to realize that this is an added risk of climate change. And not just climate change, but land use and other ways we're affecting ecosystems.
0: So I think that this is so interesting because it totally upends what I feel like I learned about types of ecosystems or biomes. Um, I distinctly remember having to memorize which climates created which types of forests or conditions in high school biology. Um, if you check your podcasting app, you should now see an image of the diagram that I'm talking about, um, if my whole little setup is working properly. Um, that whole image of like, here's where the you know rainforests are and here's why there are deserts here. Um, And that sort of isn't maybe as true as I thought it was when I memorized those things in high school. I'm sure that lots of stuff that I had to memorize in high school science classes are no longer true. Um, But it's always kind of surreal to actually encounter those things in the wild and kind of have them updated. And I think actually, you know, what Jason's talking about is sort of a newish way of understanding these things. So um, it's cool to kind of see how a field can change over time and the understanding of ecosystems can change over time. So that was super fascinating for me, at least in that conversation with him. But it also is a little bit complicated and it didn't really fit into the big picture questions we were asking, um, so it did not make the final cut. Another really interesting and sort of thorny thing that I cut out of the conversation was something that I talked to Emma Maris about, about genetics and conservation. So you heard Emma talk about the barred owl and the spotted owl, and she mentioned that they are also breeding and creating these hybrid owls. Um, And that breeding, those hybrid owls,
2: present a really interesting challenge for conservationists. Like in the case of the owls, for example, I think, you know, the instinct is, is, well, maybe the barred owls are coming because it's human because of humans. So we need to undo that. So we're going to go shoot these owls. Or maybe we're just shooting the owls because we think that the spotted owl is a distinct species. And we've kind of been trained that biodiversity means species, even though diversity on many other levels is also part of the concept. But here's the thing. The, the barred owls are better at living in the current Pacific Northwest. That is why they are displacing the spotted owls. They eat more stuff. They You can pack more of them in the same amount of uh, forest. They have more owlets in, in any given clutch. Um, they're a little more aggressive and less kind of uh, wedded to old growth. They can live in more habitats. So if they interbreed with the spotted owls, and then some hybrid owls exist, they're called sparred owls, that still have spotted owl genes in there, but are actually better adapted to live in a sort of a 21st century Pacific Northwest, maybe that is actually the best chance of keeping spotted owl genes going into the future many centuries from now, rather than trying to stop all of this change. We're basically trying to shoot the more fit genes before they get into the population.
0: And this isn't the only case in conservation where this conversation is happening. So probably the most famous example are the so-called growler bears. There's a lot of names for them. Pizzly bears is another one. I think growler bears is a way better name, which is grizzly polar bear hybrids. Um, There should now be an image of one of those in your podcasting app, I hope. Fingers crossed if this is working.
2: I think it's so. going to be interesting to see what happens with the grizzly bears like coming up. Because grizzly bears are starting to move north. And and running into polar bears more often, uh, you're probably going to cover this in the episode: the hybridization events, the growler bears, and the whole thing. And um, you know, like as a thought experiment, like what if some geneticist came and said, "Okay, so we've we've taken a look at this growler bear genome, and we think that this this hybrid will be better adapted to the climate in hundred or two hundred years from now than than the polar bear." So we recommend that you let these species interbreed so that these grizzly bear genes can get into the polar bear population so that they can persist. Like I think that would be a really hard pill for people to swallow because they wouldn't look right. Yeah. <laughs> they would they wouldn't look like the Coca-Cola ad or like uh you know the fairy tale east of the sun and west of the moon. And like honestly, I'm really sympathetic to that but at the same time it's kind of mean to the bears for us to be like Oh, you might be getting some valuable gene flow from your extremely close cousins, the grizzly bears that you only differentiated from like a couple of tens of thousands of years ago, but we're not going to let you do it because we'd like you to look pretty.
0: It's also uh, maybe hypocritical because didn't humans like breed with their close relatives and and wound up, you know, taking over the world basically?
2: Yeah, (laughs) I am proudly 2% Neanderthal and, uh, you know. Like I'm proud of my hybrid heritage. This is how nature solves problems is that it just moves around. Like this is ultimately the reason that nature is awesome is that it's dynamic in time and space and it's really complicated. So by us trying to freeze it in time and space and sort of act as if we can manage it as if it's like, you know, just a couple of just a food web that we can sketch out. um, I think we're denying the kind of thing that makes it so magical. And, you know, the, a time may come when our, when our descendants look back at us now and say they were so in love with the world that they didn't want it to change, but it was trying to change all around them to cope with what they had done to it. And they were just resisting that because they just loved it. It's like um, we can't sacrifice other species on, on the altar of our love for the ecosystems of the past. So if the polar bear
0: might go extinct because of us, because of climate change, should we stop it from breeding with the grizzlies who are moving further north also because of us and because of climate change? Or should we let them breed to at least keep some polar bear genes in the gene pool, even if we can't save the bears themselves? So this is like a big question. I don't think there's a clear, easy answer. If you want to read more about the sort of weird value that we've put in Polar Bears, I would definitely recommend John Mualim's book, Wild Ones. Um, The first chapter, it starts with this chapter about polar bears, and it is incredibly funny and interesting. And John is such a good writer, and that first chapter is just, it's amazing. You should definitely read it. Um, But polar bears are actually connected to the last thing that I did not include in the main cut of the episode, but that I want to talk about here. Um... Which is that, you know, when Emma and I got on the phone, um, you know, before we started recording, we started talking a little bit about, you know, the kinds of things I wanted to ask and, she sort of offhandedly mentioned to me this paper that she had recently read about whether or not we should feed polar bears, sort of the philosophical question around feeding polar bears, which I thought was super interesting um, and kind of related to the stuff we were talking about on the episode, but also slightly different. It's kind of a similar question around how much help should we be offering and in what forms for these species. Um, and so at the end of our call, I did ask her to say a little bit more about that, which did not make the final cut. But here's what she said about feeding polar bears.
2: Claire Palmer, who's a philosopher at Texas A&M, has written about this. She's working on this right now, and she's got a really interesting paper she's working on about sort of going through the ethical case for and against it. So if 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 climate change is melting the sea ice and the sea ice is the primary hunting ground of the polar bear, um, if there are longer and longer periods in the summer where the polar bear cannot hunt seals because there is no sea ice – do we have a collective obligation to then feed those polar bears through that period so they won't die? Um, and it's a complex problem because there's the, uh, First of all, it's important for your listeners to know that that as of right now, the polar bear is not on the brink of extinction. That some population, there's sort of 19 different populations of polar bear that that the IUCN keeps an eye on. And some of them are having these problems with the sea ice, but some of them are not. Some of them are even increasing in number because of changes in hunting regulations and stuff. Um, So if we were to swoop in and and feed them, it would either be in the future when uh, they were in a more dire place as a species, or we'd be doing it now out of almost like obligations to the individual polar bears in those populations that are suffering, like an animal welfare kind of intervention like these bears are individually starving because of climate change. So we're going to go feed them, which takes you into a whole nother world. Now you're not thinking about species as the units of value. You're thinking about individual sentient bears as the units of value. So it kind of opens another box of, uh, of problems and complexities.
0: And what are people talking about feeding these bears? So this mean that like we are killing seals to feed them. Like where does the food come from?
2: Right. So, so Claire Palmer kind of walks through the options. You should, you know, she'd be a great person to interview if you have time, but you know, one option is that we would hunt seals and then present these seals to the polar bears. Seals are extremely fatty food source. Great. You know, they've, they've kind of, uh, polar bears thrive off seals. Um, but if you're, if you're feeding the polar bears, because of your duties to their individual welfare, because you have harmed them with climate change, then it doesn't seem really cool to go and kill seals individually. You have to kill multiple seals for each bear. So you'd be killing more sentient animals than you would be saving. So the kind of animal wa- welfare math doesn't seem to add up very well there. Um, another option would be to feed them with byproducts from the, from the slaughterhouse industry, like, like bones and fat from animals like pigs that are slaughtered for human consumption. And the sort of ethical concept there is like, well, these pigs are going to die anyway to feed humans. So if we use their bones and their fat to feed the polar bears, there's no additional harms there. We're just kind of creaming off the fat and giving it to the polar bears instead of burying it or whatever.
0: I feel like that image is such a good encapsulation of, like, humans on Earth in 2020, this idea that, like, we're going to go to these pork processing plants where workers are constantly being injured and infected by coronavirus, we're going to pull this pig byproduct and we're going to helicopter it to the polar bears and drop it because they're dying because of climate change. It just feels like the most perfect encapsulation of, like, everything that is wrong with the
2: world. Yeah, it definitely feels like sticking your finger in a leak in the boat instead of, you know, fixing the boat, right? Like it's it doesn't and, – and, you know, so Palmer talks about the pros and the cons of it, but ultimately like one of the biggest – arguments against it is that you would be setting up a system you could never undo, that the bears would become completely dependent on this feeding, and you'd end up with these sort of semi-wild, semi-not-wild bears that would show up every year looking for their free lunch, and, and we would be on the hook for this forever, which in some ways is a kind of an interesting metaphor about our relationship to all of the non-human world. If we are going to try to take care of it, are we setting up this sort of system of dependency that would last in perpetuity? Or would there be some sort of exit ramp when we finally got climate change under control and the sea ice froze up again? Could we then at that point wean the bears off of this pork stuff and get them back onto the seals? And we can imagine, I keep imagining this kind of ceremony like 400 years from now where the last polar bear gets the last pork sandwich and we say goodbye to them and everybody cries and claps. Like I said, there is something so incredibly weird to me about this idea,
0: which is obviously why I like thinking about it, um because it's kind of like breaks my brain. Um but like the idea of dropping, you know, pork byproducts out of helicopters to save the polar bears is just it's an image that you couldn't really write into like a TV show because it would just feel too absurd, right? Like people would just be like that's so ridiculous. You <laughs> would like that would never happen or it just feels like too out there. And yet, you know, it's a real proposal that people are talking about. Um In fact, the polar bear expert who I mentioned at the very end, who I had emailed, um, whose email I quoted at the end of the episode, he has written about whether to feed polar bears as well as a conservation tactic. So this is not like an out there, totally bizarre proposal. This is something that people are genuinely talking about. Okay, those are all the segments that I cut from the episode. Um, There's so much to say about all of this, about climate change and migration and help and care and sort of the way we think about the earth. Um, And I am genuinely curious what you folks think about this, about moving species or not moving species. Like, should we do it? Should we not do it? Um, I would love to know what you think. So if you want to send me an email or, you know, let me know what you think, Um, I would love to know. I will say that I went into reporting this episode um, being pretty firmly against assisted migration. Um, I thought that it was sort of foolish and honestly kind of egotistical to think that we could do this in a way that made sense. Um, but as I talked to people like Guatemoc and Jason and even Emma, I sort of realized that I could actually see situations where we would want to try doing this. Um, it didn't seem like always a bad idea, although I think they all would admit, even the people who are in favor of it, I think would all admit that it's not going to save every species. It's just sort of in these partic- particular places or particular examples where it might make sense um so yeah it's definitely not the right choice for a lot of problems but I will say that I am like a lot more open to it than I was before I started reporting the episode which doesn't always happen a lot of the time I go in kind of thinking what I think and I come out being like yep that's what I thought (laughs) um so I, I do enjoy the ones where I sort of change my mind about things um I also don't think that Tiro's rewilding and Cuauhtemoc's assisted migration ideas are mutually exclusive, necessarily. Um, I think that both can kind of be a piece of this. Um, and, and I think that's an interesting conversation to have, too. Okay, that is all for this week. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the soon-to-be-renamed bonus Patreon bonus podcast um, and these little things that I caught from the episode. Um, I hope that was fun. And I will leave you now with a little secret. So um, this week's secret is that I, okay, so I'm not a Harry Potter person. Don't hate me. I just never, I could never get into the books for reasons we won't get into here. So it's very easy for me, actually, to sort of cut J.K. Rowling out of everything in my life, given her consistent and really damaging transphobia. So that has not been a challenge for me. I know for some people it's hard. The one thing that I had to figure out was how to replace the concept of being a Slytherin Um, so even though I'm not a Harry Potter person, I have a sort of running joke among my friends that I'm sort of like the Slytherin on call, right? When someone needs advice for how to kind of get what they want or negotiate a deal or just sort of be a little bit less like nice, (laughs) less of a pushover, less of a pushover. I'm using my powers for good. Okay. Um, anyway, I am the one, I am the Slytherin on call. So now I have to replace Slytherin with something and, um, what we've landed on so far is, uh, snack lady as in S E N K lady, which is like a really old internet meme. Um, for some of you that is going to make no sense for those of you who were not raised working in the meme mines, as I was, but, um, I think it's funny. So you can now call me the snack lady from here on out. Okay. Talk to you next week. Bye.